Stories are a memorable and engaging way to differentiate yourself and build connections. They're integral to forming trust, creating new thinking, and even influencing decision-making. But it isn't enough to tell a story. The way you tell a story makes all the difference in the outcome for your audience. Hey, it's Dustin, and you're listening to another episode of The Burleson Box. Today on the show, I'm so excited to welcome Karen Eber, author of The Perfect Story, How to Tell Stories That Inform, Influence, and Inspire. Karen Eber is a leadership consultant, professional storyteller, and TED speaker. Her new book evolves the conversation on storytelling. She explains how to leverage the science of storytelling to create an engaging story without relying on complicated models or one-size-fits-all prescriptions. The Perfect Story makes storytelling accessible with practical and impactful steps for anyone to tell the perfect story for any occasion. Adam Grant, the number one New York Times bestselling author of Think Again and host of the TED podcast, Rethinking, has this to say about Karen's book. Quote, we all love hearing a great story, but surprisingly few of us know how to tell one. Karen Eber is one of those few. And in this book, she shares her secrets. Come for the engrossing content and stay for the lessons that might just change how you talk, write, and lead. In a moment, we'll dig into the lessons in Karen's book, The Perfect Story. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. Are you trying to increase your treatment plan close rates while also increasing revenue? How can you do both for your dental practice without burning out an already burdened staff? The answer? Remote dental monitoring. You need a trusted HIPAA-compliant app that helps you and your staff work smarter, not harder. This needs to be an easy-to-use, easy-onboard app that your patients will find fun to use and will increase their engagement and success with aligners. You need the InHand Dental app. The InHand Dental app allows you to engage with your patients in real time, send individual and batched messages, and solve problems to increase compliance without using up chair time. The result? Happy patients, happy staff, and happy practices. With more revenue and the ability to do more starts. With prices starting as low as $149 a month, it's perfect for a growing aligner business. Check us out and learn more at InHandDental.com. Plus, mention Burleson for a 20% off discount on your subscription when you contact us. That's InHandDental.com. I'm so excited to welcome to the show Karen Eber. Karen, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. This is going to be so fun. I love your book. It's the perfect story, and it's the perfect book for this podcast. Our listeners are going to love the lessons. Tell us a little bit about you and why you chose to write this awesome book. I have used storytelling throughout my life, like through most people, not even being aware that I did it. When I was really young, I had a moment that really pushed me into storytelling. I have two different color eyes. I have a brown eye and a green eye. And when I was younger, I would notice like the exact moment when people could see because I would see their eyes going back and forth between my left and my right. It's almost like their brain was trying to decide which eye to look at because they couldn't make (laughs) sense of it. And it 
always led to an awkward line of questioning. Like, did you know you have two different color eyes? Which I always found so funny. So then I would usually respond with, no, really? (laughs) They weren't that way this morning. No, what happened? And then it almost always was, I know a dog like that. To which like, okay, what do you, what do you do with that? And then it would always go into like this line of like, David Bowie had two different colored eyes. And actually he didn't, he had a dilated pupil. What, what color eyes do your parents have? Do you see the same colors out of each eye? Do your (laughs) eyes give you special powers? And I always found these questions so weird. Like I always wanted to ask in return, like, do you see different colors out of your eyes? Like, do you realize what you're asking? And so this thing that I loved, because I had this built-in answer to tell me, tell me something interesting about yourself, this thing I love like, became this burden because they would call people over and there would be 10 faces like squished in front of mine. Look here, look here. Like I've never had a paparazzi moment, but I imagine that's what it's like. And It became this thing where I felt like a sideshow in a circus and it was really uncomfortable and I got tired of it. So one day when someone said, how did that happen? I told them that I was born with brown eyes and I was about four years old in my room coloring. Dinner wasn't going to be for a few more hours and I was hungry. And you know that big box of crayons that we all had, the ones where you put in like the, you throw in the broken ones and the peeled ones and the perfect ones. I reached into that box and I pulled out a green crayon and I took a nibble and I really liked the texture. So I ate it (laughs) and I liked it. So I ate another green crayon and another until every green crayon in the box was gone. And the next day I woke up and my left eye was green. (laughs) (laughs) And then I would be quiet and I could like, people would start looking at me sideways. Like, is she for real? Like I know logically (laughs) her eyes didn't change colors because she ate crayons, but she's saying it was such a straight face. Like now I'm really doubting. And I let them sit in that discomfort for a minute just so they knew what it felt like when they were asking me, do you see different (laughs) colors out of each eye? But I would let them off the hook. And I would say, of course, I did not eat crayons. And that's not why my eyes are two different colors. But a shift happened with that story. And so this really awkward interaction that felt like a burden was a shift in energy where it became a moment of connection where the people realized the questions that they asked and they started laughing and we had a completely different exchange that we probably wouldn't have even had without this whole piece about my eyes. I've even had people tell me, you know, 20 years later, they think of me when they see crayons. And so I realized really early on this story thing, this is kind of interesting. Like I can use this to shift a situation that feels mighty uncomfortable and create connection. And it's something that I've always explored in my career. I've spent 20 years as a head of culture and a chief learning officer and a business in general electric and a head of leadership development for part of Deloitte. And in each of these roles, I was trying to persuade people that had investments to invest in, in development and in offsites and technology, various things And maybe one person was allowed to say yes, but the majority were, you know, 99 other people could say no and stop things. And I found that stories, they slowed the no, and it allowed for people to consider things different and even have them help persuade those that have the investment. And so it's core. While a lot of the work I do is helping build healthy leaders, teams, and culture, storytelling is such a dynamic way to do that in all of our work in life. And so it's always been by my side and uh, it started with a crayon. 
<laughs> it's one of my one of my favorite stories from the book. And yeah, what an interesting I love that just to highlight that shift in energy. What a neat concept and the connection from storytelling. I, you sense this from leaders who are memorable. I feel I think of some of the great leaders who have mentored me or that I've been around. They they have that ability to shift the energy. They and they make a connection. You know, they see you, you see it in a politician who they say this lights up the room and, and just changes the energy. And it's always I I think in my experience, that they are just exceptional storytellers. And in the book, you say that we can all learn how to do this. Is that is that true? Yeah, absolutely. So I hate, you'll often hear people say, we are hardwired for story. I hate that. Because we are no more hardwired for story than we are to run a marathon or complete calculus, <laughs> yeah. right? The infrastructure is there. But if you don't know how to work with it, if you aren't training it, you're not going to naturally do it. So you're not going to come out and run a marathon the first time you run. If you do somehow manage that, you are going to be in a world of hurt or you're not going to come out and, and calculate a whole calculus equation. You need to know fundamentals. You need to know pieces. And when you learn the steps, then you're taking advantage of the infrastructure. And that's what I believe we can do. We can learn how to tell the perfect story by understanding what's happening in our brain when we tell stories or communication, but more importantly, what you then do with them when you're telling a story and then how to follow steps to tell a story that is dynamic. So anyone that feels like I'm not a storyteller, sure, it's because no one has showed you how, but you can be. Most people are not born natural storytellers. They figured it out along the way. And this is a skill that can be learned and we can all become great storytellers. Well, let's talk about that. What are some of the components to great storytelling? Is it what you say? Is it how you say it? Like my wife reminds me, it's not what you said, it's how you said it. Or is it both? You know, what, what are some of the components to a great story? Maybe what would be helpful is to talk a little bit about the science piece of it because the components are, you have, think of it like ingredients. We have a whole bunch of ingredients that we can make several different dishes of many different types of cuisine, but you, you have to understand the ingredients that you have. So when you are listening to a story, the brain is engaging more dynamically than when you're just listening to information. When we're listening to someone talk or you know, when we were in university listening to a lecture, this really small walnut-sized part of our brain was engaged, broke as area. And this is where our brain was just taking words in, looking at our internal lexicon and saying, yep, know what that is. Okay, check. Comprehension. And that's it. We're not interacting with it. We're not engaging with it. But if I start talking to you about walking on the beach and feeling the warm sand under my feet with each step almost where you can feel the the granules of the sand between your toes and you hear the waves crashing on shore, almost like a cymbal crash. And the seagull is flying above, you hear it making its its caca sound and you taste the, the salty air on your lips. What's happening now is your brain is starting to light up in those areas, even though neither of us are on the beach, sadly. Our brain can visualize this. You were picturing maybe your favorite beach and you're picturing or you're feeling almost that warm sand under your foot and that salty air and that sound of the waves. Like your brain puts you there, which is this very cool neural coupling where our brain allows for us to light up as the storytellers. It, it puts us in the story, almost gives us artificial reality. So 
just by sharing a story, you're more dynamically engaging the brain. But there are a few things that are going to make a difference in how that story is experienced. So I have what I call the five factory settings of the brain. And these are the ways your brain are going to respond to information or communication. If you think about the number one goal of the brain, it is to keep you alive. And this is our first factory setting. It's that the brain is lazy. So it has a bunch of calories that it can allocate throughout the day. It's like the banker and it's got the drawer full of calories. Some of them are non-negotiables, you know, how you're breathing, keeping your body alive, all the normal bodily functions. Some of them are the emergency store for what if something happens unexpected or how do we make predictions to move our body? And then there's the fund, the slush fund, the not committed, but we're not going to spend them easily. And this is where attention gets calories from because our brain will decide whether something is worth the attention or not. Those days that you come home and you are beat and you put on whatever your favorite show is that you've seen several times or the movie that you have watched so much that you can recite it, it's because you have that thought of like, oh, I don't want to think tonight. Like, Don't put on anything that makes me think. Your brain is saying, we need to be lazy. We're not, we're not going to spend calories here. So when someone's telling a story, this subconscious decision is being made of like, is there enough here for me to pay attention to? Or am I going to drift off and come back? Am I going to go work on my grocery list or just kind of zone out for a few minutes? But when you're telling a story, putting in unexpected events, building tension towards the conflict or even after the conflict, or even putting in really unexpected details these force the brain to spend some calories because now it's like, I'm hooked. What happens next? So that's one of the, the major elements of storytelling. The second and third factory settings go together. We, because we have this, this brokerage account of uh, calories, our brain is always making predictions. We want to predict and not react because first predicting allows for us to be on our front foot, not our back foot. Um, it also takes less calories. The faster that we can predict and make assumptions and make sense of something, the faster we can slide into lazy mode. We don't always get it right. That's a prediction error. And so corrections need to take place. But predictions are key, which is why you're trying to guess the ending of a story or guess what someone's going to say. The brain never wants things to be incomplete because uncertainty is expensive. So it's making these predictions and the way it's going to make these predictions is based on our library of files of experiences. As we're taking information through our senses, when we're having experiences, they get stamped with emotions. It's almost like if you take a photo on your cell phone and you swipe up, that photo is stamped with the date, the location, the f-stop, the aperture, like everything that went into taking that photo is immediately stored on it. Something similar kind of happens when we're taking in information through our senses of they are getting stamped with these experiences and stored in our long-term memory. So as the brain is making these predictions about how we want to decide, how we want to act, it's going through these experiences to see, have we done this before? Is this similar to something we've done before? Is this brand new? And in storytelling, you can connect people to these emotions by connecting to the things that they know. You know, when I'm telling you about walking on the beach, most of us have had that experience and can put ourselves there and we immediately know what that's like without even telling our brain, like, imagine you're on a beach. As I start talking about it, you experience it. 
So those three together work hand in hand where you are needing to put things in your stories that make the brain say, yeah, this is this is worth the calorie spend. And I'm either slowing assumptions by putting in the unexpected events and, and details that, that make it hit a speed bump and say, oh, I didn't expect that. Or I'm leaning into assumptions to help them fill their brain with the images that I want. And we're connecting people to their emotions in their library of files. So those are the first three. The last two are that we naturally sort people and events into in-groups and out-groups. In-groups are those that we feel a sense of belonging with. Maybe it's shared experiences or values or um, people that just feel comfortable to be around, or maybe even aspirationally, this is the I'll have what she's having. Or for many of us service providers, when, when patients are coming for a problem or a solution, like they're coming because they want the outcome. The out groups are where we notice a difference. So we recognize that we don't have those things. So in in groups, you feel that that belonging, you feel that kinship almost. In out groups, charities use this. You hear a story about a natural disaster and someone that is struggling because they don't have housing, they don't have electricity, food, clothing, right? They're trying to figure all that out. Meanwhile, you're listening to this in a home that has electricity and food and you recognize how different your circumstances are. What this means in storytelling is you have this choice of, am I telling a story where I want people to feel a sense of belonging and a member of this in-group, of these these values, these experiences or expectations, or even um, something they aspire to? Or am I telling a story where I want them to notice their difference and they feel like a member of an out-group? And the last factory setting is at our most simplistic level, we have this cocktail of neurochemicals that have a seek pleasure and avoid pain. The pleasure neurochemicals, dopamine, oxytocin, serotonin are released in, in bonding and reward and connection. This is the things that we experience when we get the goosebumps, when we're listening to someone tell a story, or maybe even when our eyes well up a little. You have the experience of these neurochemicals in stories. When you're watching maybe a horror movie and you feel the tension building and you feel your heart rate quicken, that is the experience of usually some adrenaline or some cortisol being released that is telling your brain is telling your body like focus, there's something not right here. So when you're telling a story, you have the choice of, am I telling a feel good story or an uncomfortable story or both? I have a Ted talk and the opening of my Ted talk is about someone who dropped their phone down an elevator shaft that is intentionally uncomfortable to come around to the lesson. So these five things start to give you different things that are happening in the brain that end up being choices of what am I putting in the story that makes the brain spend calories? How am I slowing down assumptions or connecting to what people know? Am I trying to make the audience feel like a member of an in-group or the out-group or both? Am I telling a, an uncomfortable story or a feel-good story or both? And so you can play with all of these across the character, across the plot points to see what makes this story feel the most engaging for the listener. I thought of and that I saw in the book, you interviewed a former uh, creative director at Pixar. And every time I watch a Pixar movie, I think almost every single time, I'm like, they're going to get me at some point. I'm, my, my eyes are going to well up. I'm going to get a little teary here. Um, I mean, like if you haven't watched Up and the whole opening 20 minutes is just like, oh my God, it's like an overwhelming 
story they're telling. And uh, I love the science and you break it down in chapters two and three. It really, it's such a clever way to remember it too. In the, in the five factory settings, I, I like chapter four. I like the whole book. I like chapter four, particularly because as you learn the science and I encourage listeners to go get the book, dig into chapter two and three and understand what's going on in our brains when we listen to and share stories to connect emotionally. But then four really resonated with me because I realized I can actually harness some of these emotional elements, right? Like I, I, as I was going through the book, I'm like, I just don't know how good of a storyteller I am. I don't like what stories would I even have to share? But I mean, you have some really great prompts. Can we talk about that concept first? That, that even something as simple as like thinking back to, to a smell that reminds you of home. We all have this ability to to connect emotionally. I just think I never really tapped into it. I guess. Yeah. I don't know if that's a cool yeah. Question, but that's kind of kind of what I was thinking. I just I want to make sure everyone gets through um, chapter four and realizes that there is a, a a huge store kit uh, in in all of us. I think right that that would help us uh, connect more emotionally through sharing stories. Yeah, I think most people struggle with that. Like, what story am I going to tell? By the way, I do too. You know, I will be preparing for a keynote and I don't do the keynote the same way every time. And so I want to make sure that any audience I'm speaking to, it feels meaningful. And so then I go down the, well, what story am I going to tell? What's right for this audience? And, and the answer is always constraint. When you are questioning, how am I going to come up with an idea? It is because what happens is your brain doesn't know which file to access in that library of files. So if you don't mind, can I ask two questions of you so we can demonstrate this and then we can explain it further? Oh, cool. Yes. We'll do okay. it live. You, you alluded <laughs> to it, so you know where it's going to go. So I'm going to ask two questions. The first one's going to be intentionally vague and just do your best. Tell us about your childhood. What was your childhood like? It was, I had two brothers, and so we were all very close in age. We spent a lot of time outside. So a lot of my childhood was in the woods, making forts, riding four-wheelers, and being boys out in the wilderness. And uh, so I spent a lot, most of my childhood, I remember like the summers. I think I've conveniently packed the winters away somewhere deep in my the recesses of my brain. But outside, in the mud, you know, camping out and doing fun stuff with my brothers. Love that. Yeah. I too was in the fourth century. So I'm picturing my version of that. Okay. So let me ask you the second question, then I'll step back and, and explain more. But the second question is what sound or smell remind you of home? Oh yeah, like birds chirping and then like uh, fire, like a camp like campground like firewood from camping out and stuff like that. Yeah. So let's let's point out what happened, right? So the first one it was a really broad question. And when I ask a broad question like that, the brain says, well, childhood is really long. Like, what do you mean childhood? What part of childhood? Do I know about schooling, where I lived, my relatives, when I had a sleepover? Like, what do you mean? Because that question makes the brain almost be paralyzed. Of, I don't know what file to access. Your answer about you went into summers, right? That was awesome because you gave us a little specific moment of we can now picture you in trees and, and riding bikes and, and just having fun with the guys. What happens most often with this question is people describe the number of family members around them, maybe the location or type of home they have, and then like generally like what you did of, and you know, it was, it was this, I, I rode bikes and climbed trees. Now we could dig into that further and there would be so many stories, but it's broad because the question is broad. But when I ask you what sound or smell remind you of home, you gave two really specific 
answers, right? So we could dig into the fire alone. And I'm sure there are probably 20 different stories of, of the role fire played in your house or in your, in your life. I'm assuming this is campfire and not pyro. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you weren't the, the pyro child, right? Yeah, we weren't but traveling. We could, yeah. We weren't traveling in a circus doing, you know, a flame throwing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you weren't setting fire to your neighbors. We were setting fire, yeah. We weren't burning things down. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> right. And so this is, this is the example of the more specific the question, the easier the answer. And think about it. Like anytime you've asked a child, like, how was your day? Good. Mm-hmm, good. You don't get an answer because you're not asking something funny. But if you ask like, who got in trouble today, you will get an earful. (laughs) And so the same thing happens when we're trying to come up with stories. The best time to create a list of potential stories is before you ever need one. Because the moment you're backed up against a deadline, you already have a little bit of cortisol going, which is going to be narrowing your focus, which means the brain is not going to be as creative and free thinking. The more time you have, the more the easier it is. So my recommendation is start building a list before you ever need to tell a story. Pick a place to put it. Maybe that's a notebook, a spreadsheet, an app. Um, Have a place that's dedicated so that you know where to put it and not worry about trying to remember it. So for me, I get a lot of my ideas on walks and I used to think like, oh, I'll remember this later and I wouldn't. So now I use an app online and then I'll later dump them into a spreadsheet, but have a place and start going through your life. Start going through your professional experiences, the types of questions almost that you always asked here in your standard job interview of, Tell me about your best experience, a time you had conflict, someone that you learned from, you know, what was a lesson you unexpectedly learned? Uh, What's your best day at work? You start asking yourself questions and the first time you do it, it is slow and it is awkward because your brain is trying to figure out which file to access. But once you start, you build momentum and it goes much quicker. Look at your personal life. Think of something like, what is something you should have gotten rid of but just can't? Um, <laughs> you know, there's there, you pick these specific moments and prompts, and it unleashes all of these ideas. I'm a fan of, you know, I love podcasts, and I always get different ideas on podcasts. Or maybe I've read an article, or I went to a show, or a play, or or you know, maybe an art exhibit. Like just living in the world, things come up, and so as you start to engage in life. Notice those things that intrigue you because you want to use stories that are interesting and you want to jot down enough so that when you scan this list later, you remember what it means. You're not writing out a full story. You're not worrying about the point of the story or who you're telling it to, or even how you tell it. You're really, truly building a list of ideas When it comes time, when you have an opportunity to tell a story, you scan the list and ask yourself, which one of these helps me build that idea that I want for my audience? Most often, it's not even an idea on the page, but the act of scanning it prompts a whole new idea that's perfect. Now, a quick word from our sponsor. When's the last time you evaluated your credit card processing statement? Our partners at Stacks are offering a free savings analysis for our listeners, where they will actually take your merchant statement with your current processor and show you where you're overpaying. Stacks has saved orthodontics practices over 40% per month on payment processing costs. So don't wait. Get your free savings analysis today and see how much you're overpaying for your credit card processing. 
Go to StaxPayments.com forward slash Burleson dash seminars to schedule your savings analysis today. Plus, as a special offer for our podcast listeners, if you sign up today, you can get your first two months of payments processing costs waived from Stax. Once again, that's StaxPayments.com forward slash Burleson dash seminars. Stop overpaying. Start saving. And now, back to the program. Yeah, it, it's profoundly changed the way I approach meetings and just even one-on-ones, but particularly with, with a team. And, and for listeners of this podcast, maybe a team of employees in your dental or orthotic practice, that concept of, okay, we have this thing we need to talk about, so let's talk about that idea. And instead, you wisely say we should begin with the audience. And so that has really helped me in my... Um, in my storytelling because before it's like, well, we need to talk about these initiatives we're doing. And instead it's like, well, wait, this is just going to be the clinical team that's going to be in this group listening to this, you know, conversation. And, and, and so it changes the entire dynamic when you start with the audience and, and you wisely did that before we turned on the record. <laughs> tell, me, tell me about your audience. I think it's really, really clever. So yeah. Uh, well, and yeah. here's why just to just spend another moment on the audience, because the stories do always begin with the audience, even before you know the story you want to tell, or even if you know the story you want to tell, here's why. Think about that relative at the holiday table that tells the same story every year. Like you could mouth along word for word because like, oh my gosh, we have heard this story 17 times. You don't even really need to be at the table because he's not telling it for you. And for some reason, it's always an uncle. Sorry, uncles out there. Um, He's not telling it for you. He's telling it for him. Like you are inconsequential in this. And when people tell stories that they want to tell, or that they're focused on, that they love, their greatest hits, but they're not stopping to think about like, who am I telling this to and why am I telling it? You risk it not landing because you're telling it for yourself. When you start from that place of the audience and you get really clear on what you want them to to know, think, feel, or do after the story and where their mindset is today and, and what even might be an obstacle in getting them there, it's now a different conversation because now you can picture someone sitting across the table from you and you can make small tweaks in what you say to make sure that it's meaningful to them. Yeah. What would you say to a listener that says, you know, just a private person. I don't like to share anything about my private life. I don't really want to share stories. Um, you wisely, I think, point out in the book a, a, a smarter way to approach that. What would you say for someone that says, well, I really just... You know, I like I like to keep to myself and I don't really have any stories to to share. Yeah. Welcome to the Privacy Club. <laughs> I like to think of it as storytelling is personal. 100% storytelling is personal. Even if you are telling someone else's story, meaning you are bringing your perspective. There's a reason why you were the one telling this story. You know, if you and I both told the same story, we would tell it differently because we each have a different perspective. And it's important that storytelling is personal, but personal doesn't mean private. Each person gets to decide what are those private details that they don't want to share. I was working with a a Fortune 500 client, a C-suite team, senior leadership team, and there was a team of all men and one woman. I was working with the woman. She was preparing for a big annual meeting presentation. And she said, I don't want to talk about my family. 
I feel like I'm already different from the rest of the people on the team and they are you know, a good 15 years older than me. Their children are not at home. I don't really feel like they played an active role. I, like, I just don't want to be judged or looked down upon because I have family. And for her, that was her private and that is completely fine. For other people, they love to share experiences from their family and that's fine. I personally have a pretty high privacy barrier, so I rarely tell stories about my family, but I will happily tell you about mistakes I've made, about like things that that might be embarrassing because to me, that's not private. That's a way to help share information and learn. And so each person needs to think about what is personal versus private and recognize that often when you feel like I don't have something to say, you know, sharing your perspective on a situation or something happening in the practice, or maybe something that you've struggled with or changed your thought on, like a lot of that goes a really long way to people feeling connected. Because when you're sharing things like that, that by the way, usually have nothing to do with your privacy barrier, you are sending this subtle signal to the people that you're sharing this with that I trust you enough to share this with you. I trust you enough to share with you my perspective and my thoughts and my hopes for all of us. And so storytelling is personal, but it doesn't have to be private. That's such a great summary. Yeah, I I, I think it's helped me in in kind of making that distinction, right? I think because some people it's like, oh, don't don't overshare, right? But to share how you overcame something or or like you said, a mistake you've made. I mean, everyone can then start to think emotionally in their brain how they've made a similar mistake and how they might overcome it um through through that shared emotional experience. Yeah, and let's just touch briefly on overshare. When something is overshared, it means that you haven't related it in a way that's meaningful to the audience. So you can turn on TED Talks, right? There are some incredible stories there of people that have battled addiction or incredible loss in their life that maybe you or I would say, oh, no, I would never share that. That's oversharing. But the way they're doing it, they're doing it in context of the outcome they want for their audience, and they're doing it in a way that they're making it relatable to the audience. So it's not about you judging me for this experience or this story. It's about me inviting you in to understand understand what the idea is and what that could be like and what the takeaway is. When someone overshares, they're just dropping a mess on you and not helping you navigate through what is meaningful for it. Huge. Yeah. It's such a great distinction. One of the mistakes to avoid, which you give some really great, I think somewhat common mistakes we make when we tell stories and and we've hit on a few of those. I want to talk about structure. Um, You say, quote, many stories fall apart because they lack structure. And we make it hard for the audience to follow. And uh, I just want to maybe dig into that a little bit further because I think that's one area where I've tried to improve and and having some sort of a, you know, start and middle and end, and you know, or a history, current and future, you know, in in the stories I'm telling. And uh, I just want to maybe get your thoughts for the listener who says, okay, I'm... I'm warming up to the idea of being a better storyteller, and particularly as they lead team meetings. Uh, how do we structure these so that the audience gets the b- biggest impact? Here is what a story without structure looks like. It was uh, it was Tuesday, and I was getting ready to meet my friend for lunch, and I was running a little bit late. And actually, maybe it was Monday. <laughs> 
think it was Monday. Oh, it was Monday for sure because it was raining and I had to go to the dry cleaners and I forgot my umbrella. And anyhow, so I'm on my – actually, no, wait. I think it was Tuesday. <laughs> there's no story there, yet we all do this. And yeah. there's a reason why we're doing it. We're trying to put ourselves back in that place because we want to tell the story authentically. We want to be sharing the emotions, the experience, the details. However, that is so painful for the audience. And what's going to happen two seconds in is their brain, their brain broker is going to be like, mm, no, we're going to nope. be lazy. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, not worth the calorie spend. When you have a basic structure for a story, it's not only going to make it easier for you to tell it, it's going to make it easier for the audience to hear. And there are so many structures out there. You will often hear a guidance towards like the hero's journey or even Pixar, like you mentioned, has amazing models. I find that for the average person, they're not helpful. They are great, maybe if you're writing fiction or a screenplay, but when you're trying to communicate with someone or land an idea, these models get really complicated because they have many, many steps and it's very hard to back your idea into them. I encourage a four-part model that you want to work through, and you can do this five minutes before you tell a story. You want to work through a sentence for each of these to give you like the high-level skeleton of the story. So the first is the context. What's the setting of the story? Who are the major people involved and why should the audience care? Write out a sentence for that. You're not including every character in the story, every plot point. You're just giving the little brief bio. The second is the conflict. What is the moment that something happens or what is the tension that has to be resolved in the story? Conflict can be between two people. It could be between a person and themselves. Uh, you know, conflict is the fuel of your story. You want to write a sentence for that. Third is the outcome. What action is taken? What happens as a result of the outcome? What, what is going on there, right? What, what is the thing that results? You write out a sentence for that. And the fourth is the takeaway. And this is the one most people skip. And when you skip this, you often have your story fall apart. And we'll talk about why in a moment. The takeaway is what do you want the audience coming away with? What is the idea you want them coming away with? And the reason the takeaway is so important is you want to be able to take that takeaway and compare it back to what you defined for the audience in terms of what you wanted them to experience, because you should be able for that takeaway to line up to the audience. When you don't do a takeaway, your story doesn't stick the landing. When I'm working with people and they're like, I've got this story and it's great, but it just falls apart. I'm like, yeah, what's your takeaway? They go, I don't know. I'm like, exactly. That's why you can't stick the landing. You want to have an idea of what it's for. So writing out four sentences for the context, the conflict, the outcome, the takeaway, it gives you a skeleton structure. No, this isn't enough because we know from the five factory settings, you're going to need to put on unexpected events and, and um, details and engaged senses and emotions. Like You're going to need to layer on pieces, but by putting this structure in place, it is going to help organize it better in your head you're going to tell a tighter story and it's going to make it easier for the audience to listen to. That is worth its weight in gold. Go back and rewind and listen to that a few times. It's uh, it's absolutely brilliant. I'm curious your thought on uh, sharing the story of others. I, I use this in case studies. I teach the practice management courses 
at the university at the dental school for graduating residents. And I'll often share a case study from Harvard Business Review or MIT and and we'll we'll share the story of maybe how Coca-Cola, you know, lost four billion dollars of market share when they tried to make new Coke in the 80s when they made Pepsi, or they tried to make Coca-Cola taste like Pepsi. And we dig into some of the principles and strategies and and, and we're just resharing the story of something that happened, you know, almost 40 years ago. And that um sometimes resonates well with brands that that the audience recognizes or holds dear. Do you have thoughts around someone who say, listen, I, I have some of my own stories, but can I share stories from outside of my own personal experience? What are your thoughts around that? 100%. You can share any type of story. The key is just to make sure you relate it to the audience. So I've shared that story too with Coca-Cola for Fortune 500 companies that are looking at their organizational culture. So when they were when they were making new Coke, they'd go and they'd do these test, taste tests. And every single time it was beating Pepsi. And they would ask the consumers, would you buy this? And I, I don't remember the exact number, but it was like in the 90% of, yes, we would buy it. So like you said, Coca-Cola moves forward with this production and it flops immeasurably because they asked the wrong question. They asked, would you buy it? They didn't ask, would you buy it if we removed all the other products, which is exactly what they did. And I've used that as a way to recognize or help companies recognize like, the question you only get answers to the questions that you ask. If they had asked a different question, they would have had a different result and they wouldn't maybe wouldn't have had the failure that they did. Now you could take that same story and relate it in so many other ways. So it's not critical that it's a story about yourself. It is critical that the story is made relatable for people. You know, I when I was in Deloitte heading up leadership development, I was putting together a class on negotiations. And many people have a lot of emotions about negotiations. They feel uncomfortable with it. It feels incredibly hard. Part of the class was I brought in a hostage negotiator from the New York Police Department. And this is someone that informed the movie Dog Day Afternoon, like had all of these incredible stories. And over dinner, he shared his stories. And I thought like, this is so amazing because we've just spent the day practicing these concepts. People are going to really, you know, enjoy hearing this and, and get so much from it. And the complete opposite happened. They were overwhelmed at his stories and just thought, oh my gosh, I have never been in a hostage situation. I can't even imagine what that's like. And instead of hearing what he said in terms of the approaches for how he negotiated and what he did, which weren't different from what they learned that day, they it just didn't relate to them. They could not hear it. And this was something I recognized really late into the dinner of, oh, they're not getting it. They need more translation to understand how the same things apply to them. Maybe the context is different. Maybe the the industry is different. You know, maybe, you know, dentists aren't producing Coca-Cola, but you can still produce that takeaway in a way that's relatable to them. So different stories are wonderful. Stories about yourself are wonderful. The goal is always like, make sure you're being the translator so that the people that are experiencing the story really feel like it relates to what they do. Yeah. And circling back to your really smart strategy of keeping a spreadsheet or, or note or some sort of a system, even if it's just a notebook. And, and you're right, I found the same experience. I'm like, I'll write that I'll remember this. <laughs> and like ten minutes later, I'm like, what was that really great idea I had for a blog post? Uh it's gone, it's gone out the out the door. I think maybe a good idea if you read an article, you go into the Sunday Times and you say, Oh, that's interesting. That might be a really great story to share at a team meeting or 
at a presentation I give. You know, you might not use it for a year or you may never use it, but do you also categorize other things you find interesting in the news or perhaps in a book? Do you put those into your spreadsheet? I do. Um, I'm less, so I, I generally don't use like current news, but I do. Well, I did in the pandemic when there was a lot of argument about where people work and how they work and all of that, because a lot of that that is relevant to my work. I'll tell you what it, what happens frequently is I'm a sucker for documentaries. I think oh, yeah. documentaries are such amazing storytelling and the way they approach it. Like it's just so fascinating to me. Um, so I love to watch, you know, documentaries and comedians and all of that. And I get so many ideas from that. In fact, in the book, I talk about the movie Jaws. A lot of that came from this amazing documentary about Steven Spielberg. So it's less the the piece and more like, as I notice excitement for something, I'm like, oh, that's really fascinating. I put it down. Because if I think it's fascinating, I'm going to help someone else think it's fascinating. And, you know, sometimes they are on the island of misfit ideas that never have a home, but they serve a purpose because then when I'm scanning the list, it triggers so many other things. Or it's a, oh yeah, I remember reading that or watching that. That's interesting. Maybe I should go back to that publication and see if there's another article that feels meaningful. It's a really smart strategy. Yeah, I, I love that. Uh, I know we're getting close to the end of our time together. I have to ask if you have time how we should be using stories in job interviews. I, I love this concept, and I'm curious what you've learned and the companies you consult with and, and over the years. How, how should we be using stories in job interviews? Are there any mistakes we can try to avoid? And, and why is that so important? Yeah, let's talk about it on both sides. If you are the person that is interviewing and if you are the person doing the interviewing, because I know many people listening do the interviews. The goal of using storytelling in a job interview is that if you are the person interviewing, you are trying to build the interviewer's understanding of you. If you aren't telling a story, it's up to them to translate your experience and how that would work in their practice, in their business. And that means that 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 might not be the same way you would describe it. So think of storytelling as a more vivid way to help build the understanding of the person being interviewed. And to do that, there's a few things that help. The first is I recommend coming up with three words or phrases that describe you. And not like conscientious because everyone says conscientious. These should be really specific examples because what you're trying to do is be memorable and have the person interviewing you remember you. So I might tell you that I'm like a tour guide of storytelling, that I'm going to take you to new destinations and you're going to learn things along the way. You'd probably remember that after a conversation as I work that into a response. It might even be something that I put in a cover letter or in a thank you note. So first, come up with three words or phrases that that really are highlighting you at your best in a descriptive way so that they're memorable and you can work them into the discussion. The second big thing goes back to the factory of settings. When you are interviewing, you are trying to demonstrate where you are a member of the in-group and a member of the out-group. So when you're demonstrating you're a member of the in-group, the person you're interviewing with can see you joining. They can see the experience that you bring, um, how you fit in well, that it doesn't feel like a stretch or something that is is odd. This isn't culture fit, but this is culture ad. Like they can see that. And it's like, yeah, that that is easy to see. You also, though, want to demonstrate when you are a member of the out-group, which is 
here is where my experiences are different from the people in your company where you, you know, there's differences from your team and what I bring that's going to complement and not compete. And you want to think of those as you think through those, tell me about a time questions, because that is going to be important so that you are weaving them in so that again, you're building the understanding and the interview that they get. I understand now this person, you know, I've got these memorable phrases that are descriptive that I'm going to remember after this interview. And I also can easily see where they fit in, but also where they are or where they add to our fit, but also where they are bringing some things that will help grow us. So you have those in mind and you sit down with your basic, tell me about a time question. There's many online search for your favorites and you want to write out a four part story structure for them where you're weaving those things in. You want to describe the conflict for these. So if it's, you know, tell me about a time you faced a challenge. So you would want to describe what is that challenge or conflict? What what was happening? What was at stake? What was hard? You want to describe the outcome. What action was taken to address the conflict? You want to describe the result. And then most importantly, what did you learn? So you take those tell me about a time questions and you use that frame and you weave in these vivid descriptions and you thoughtfully think, answer the question in a way that shows, here's where I'm a member of the end group. Here's where I am different. And you're now helping shape this understanding in the interviewer's brain. If you're the interviewer and the person hasn't come doing these things, you want to ask these questions in a way where you are having them tell you stories. And if they aren't telling you like what they learned and stuff, ask that because what you want to do is get as much of this, um, get as much of the understanding from the person themselves so that you're not making assumptions and bias and, and things that, that maybe are wrong. Your goal in the interview is to use stories to understand this person, their experiences, where they fit, where they're different, where they add and where they're different and what you would do with that. And stories are such a dynamic way to get there. So you could do the opposite. Like, tell me a word or phrase that describes you. And if they say conscientious, because most people would be like, what does that look like? Like, let's be really descriptive of, give me an example of when you've been conscientious. Those specific moments are going to leave a stronger impression for you. Yeah. It's, and I think it helps, as you mentioned, get get a more uh, accurate picture of the person across the table from you. and. Mm-hmm. And to, I think, build better teams, right? I think I think if you think about the power of a story, you mentioned Steven Spielberg and Jaws. I mean, think about the wide, diverse audience that loves Jaws from age and ethnicity and part of the world. I mean, there's this ability to bring people together through storytelling. And I think in the interview process, it's so often, and I did a lot of interviews and realized I was not very good at them. And we have a, a friend and fellow consultant in that space who's wonderful at them. And I think he is just a brilliant storyteller and knows how to get the person across the table to share their story so that we're hiring people that are more diverse and and stronger as a team versus do you check these boxes in hiring, like for example, a doctor to come work on your team? Do you check these boxes? Do you have a license, you know, and do you fit the criteria versus who are you as a person? Uh, I just, I really appreciated that. And I thought, Oh, this is directly applicable for everyone listening because we've all been in job interviews on on both sides of the table on in this audience and 
I think it's important to recognize the power in that. So thank you for, for sharing that. You're welcome. I'd love for everyone to get to learn more about you. I know um, you've got a wonderful TED Talk. You've got uh, obviously a, a wonderful group you lead called the Eber Leadership Group. Where can people go to learn more about uh, what you're reading and writing and, and how to get more resources and, and find more about the book? My website is the best place. It's my name, K-A-R-E-N-E-B-E-R.com. On there, you will find out about the book, but there's also a section called Brain Food that has um, different blog articles that are all free on storytelling leadership that have a story and tools in it that you can leverage. Karen, thank you for being on the program. Thanks for writing the book. It's so, so good. And I hope everyone gets through it quickly. Give it to your teammates, give it to colleagues and share it with everyone you know. Uh, Thank you, Karen, so much for being here. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on another episode of The Burleson Box. And a special thank you to Karen Eber for coming on the show. I had a lot of fun. I hope you did too. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to share us with a friend, colleague, employee, anyone who might benefit from the lessons. Leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform and subscribe on whichever platform you use to consume your podcast. And until next time, take care and be well. I'll see you right here inside another episode of The Burleson Box. Dr. Burleson here. You've heard that real estate should be a part of every investor's portfolio, but maybe you're unsure where to start. My good friend and colleague, Dr. David Phelps, leads an investor community that has ditched the traditional Wall Street model for the stability of real estate assets. They are called Freedom Founders, and they do real estate really, really well. David's Freedom Blueprint reveals exactly how much you need to retire. Some of my top clients have done the program. They speak highly of David and his Freedom Blueprint. With the certainty of their passive real estate investments, Freedom Founders members are free to spend more time with family or even leave the practice altogether. David has put together some special resources for my listeners. To access, just text Dustin to 972-203-6960 or go to freedomfounders.com forward slash Burleson.